Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fifteenth of February, Wednesday. An old moon leans back against the dawn. Gulls scythe and cry between the street lamps and traffic noise. Chaos above and chaos below. But between the concrete, there is green. You join me on a night of racing clouds and a drift of stars. It's blowy but mild, and the trees are a dance. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrow casting into the darkness to you, wherever you are. Thank you so much for coming. I'd already got the kettle warming and stoked the fire in case you could make it. It's a wild night outside, so come inside for a while and welcome aboard. Milder weather has given a spring-like feel to much of the week, despite some rather foggy mornings. And in fact, more than one person has mentioned that it's going to be nice to do a spot of spring cleaning soon. Spring's a bit like that. It creates a desire for clean starts. And no matter how much you try to keep on top of it, Running a solid-fuel stove means that dust and ash slowly accumulate on every surface and edge. It's therefore nice when you can get an opportunity to strip everything down and give everything a good wash and brush up. And actually, Donna this week, when I was out at work, started sanding down and revarnishing the wooden drop-down table that's situated in the cratch or the, the well deck in the bow of the boat. It's one of the newer features to the Erica, and we had it made for us just after we bought her. It makes eating outside when the weather's nice so much easier, and on hot days it's a lovely place to work from. And where we are at the moment, we're entering the period of the school half-term holidays, and so it's nice to see more boats out and about. And the towpath has been really busy too and green shoots are bursting out all along the bankside, and the bared earth is being covered with an ever-thickening mat of lime and emerald green vegetation. The rabbits are becoming a bit more visible too, and earlier today a squirrel scolded me for sitting under their tree. And the ducks are now increasingly busy and pairing off. However, I still haven't seen much of the swans, although I haven't been around during the day that much this week. And I did see one, although I couldn't quite make out whether it was the male or the female, but that was my only sighting. And it's the time of year that we are now beginning to become much more careful about making sure the doors are closed and the canopies are zipped down. The ducks are very much on the hunt for safe and cosy nesting sites, and a well deck 
or a semi-trad stern deck are viewed as ideal prime duck real estate. Listen to the wind. This is the oceanic sound of trees in the wind. Bare limbs bending and whipping, bucking and jostling. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands, the psalmist writes. But he didn't mention their song. At the moment, we're experiencing the outer edges of Storm Otto, and the gusts are not much above 25 to 30 mile an hour. They're much stronger further north. Nevertheless, the Atlantic-blown winds bellow and roar through the tops of the trees that line the canal towpath on the opposite bank. And it's just like being at the coast here, the noise, breakers foaming on the harbour bar, and this little inlet that forms the shallow bay is like a miniature seaside cove today. A succession of ripples spreading out from the centre of the canal send a pulse of gentle waves that swell and ebb like sea tides. A rush, and then draw back that covers and uncovers the thrown slabs of concrete and shingle. A few of the smaller stones are caught in the currents. And from time to time the wind whips and barrels down the length of the canal, driving fanning ridges into the water's choppy surface. It doesn't quite create white crests, but they're not far off. The water looks thick and lumpy, the colour of dampened clay. Today, it's being sculpted by the wind. I crouch beside the little patch of dead willow herb. It's warm. I'm almost too hot in my coat. I think about taking it off. I'm enjoying just sitting here too much to move. Perhaps I'll do it later on. One of last year's tan ash keys that are still hanging from the great ash opposite us flutters past my face. I try to spot where it's landed, but the leaf litter is too great. I can hear the crows, but I can't see any. It's strange. I would have thought that this would be exactly the type of day and the type of wind to bring them out in a tumultuous carnival of acrobatting and hooliganing, hanging on the wind with wings outstretched. Look at me! I suppose that they have more serious jobs to do. This wind will bring down many a much-needed nest. 
and crows' nests are not particularly robust constructions at the best of times, often appearing as a thrown catastrophe of twigs. There'll be emergency repairs to be done today, for sure. Egg-laying time is almost imminent. Now is also the time where aerial duck displays are getting to their height. Two males dueling for the female. The one that can cut the other off appears to be the winner. Three ducks exploding out of the water in a cascade and shower of water droplets cutting low and fast at treetop height, arcing around. The loser pulling out, veering away to left or right. The pair going on, landing synchronously together, back on the water. But unsurprisingly, they all seem to be grounded today, either crouched on the bankside or blown to the canal's edges their feathers at times being blown awry by a gust. Like me, they prefer to sit it out, to wait, to watch. And for some reason, all this noise and this frenetic movement seems to calm me. My hair is being blown every which way, but I feel strangely stilled. I watch a leaf drift in and out of the bay and listen to the wind. First of all, I must begin by expressing a very big thank you to our very first lock wheelers for the podcast. Mary Keane, Arabella Holtzapfel and Stephen Pilea. Mary, you have the distinction of being the very, very first lock wheeler and thank you so much. And also thank you for your kind and supportive words. And Arabella, who is another long-time listener, thank you so much. And it's always lovely to hear from you. And thank you. And I have the joy, and it is that, of having my office right next door to Stephen. So I know Stephen personally. So thanks, buddy. You shouldn't have. And I know you know that. And I know that's the whole point of it. So thank you. And I have to admit, I always get a bit nervous when I remember that Stephen sometimes listens to these podcasts. Stephen's a linguist and I can't help but feel he's a bit naked when I talk to him. Like he can decode every word and interrogate every mangled sentence construction under the spotlight of his expertise. My words, I feel, can't hide me from Stephen's penetrating linguistic gaze because linguists know stuff. And most dangerous of all, they know how words work. And I sometimes get this feeling that you can get when you find out that the person that you've just been happily chatting to is a psychiatrist. Like, 
they can see right through you to the you that you had no idea was there. And now that you have found that you, it's pretty disappointing and you can't stuff that you back into the bag that it was once hidden in because now everyone can see it. And of course, Stephen's not at all like that. He's great. I really like him. And he's one of the good guys, the kind that you're glad he's batting on your side. And I'm sure he doesn't do any of that. And he does assure me that he genuinely enjoys the podcast. So thank you, Stephen. Don't worry about my feelings of insecurity and inadequacies. And also, hello and thank you to Anna McKellar for all the lock wheeling that you do for the podcast on Mastodon. I really do appreciate it. And also, a really big thank you in particular for your comments on the things that you've been enjoying about the structure of the episodes after last week's episode. It's information like that that I find really, really helpful. So thank you. And while I'm talking about lock wheeling, a couple of people have commented or asked some questions about it. First of all, Dave Keating asked about the origins of the term. And to me, I don't actually know. It's just that I seem to remember it being around when I was a lad. So that would have been, what, the 60s or so. So I assume it was coined by the working boaters. And it was certainly they were the ones that I saw lock wheeling at the time. And that might help to answer a reservation voiced by Derek Watts on the narrowboat Silver Fox. Hi, Derek, about whether it was a little bit selfish rushing ahead to set locks in your favour. And what about boats coming the other way, which being closer to the lock would have priority? And yes, that's perfectly true. There wasn't so much traffic on the canals in those days. And so it possibly wasn't such a problem. And flyboats, I don't know if they still existed in the 60s, had priority anyway. Nevertheless, records do show that disputes and sometimes even fights did break out over who had priority to a lock. It was generally decided by who was closest, hence a marker post being installed at halfway points between locks on the pound at more congested areas. However, lock wheeling tended to be done for flights or batches of locks that were quite close together and they certainly wouldn't go on miles ahead to set a lock and Derek also mentioned the adverts now I'm not quite sure if I understand what you're saying Derek but it seems as if you have adverts already added to the podcast and I'm not aware of this and all I can think is that the particular directory or provider that you're using might be inserting them themselves Although a lot of the directories, like, for example, Player FM, it, even the free version of it, don't do this. So if this is the case, these are not sanctioned by Buzzsprout and certainly not by me and not receiving any revenue from them. So if you are having adverts added and you find them intrusive, then can I encourage you to use the player on the noswpod.com website or go straight to the Buzzsprout page. That way you can avoid unnecessary advertisements. And the other advantage of using the noswpod.com website is that I can add and upload more photographs and add a little bit more detail to the program notes. And the other thing I just want to pick up on that Derek mentioned was that the tawny owl hoot right at the end of the podcast can sometimes jolt him awake. And I know that last year there was a problem with the sound levels of the engine on the outro, which I've now managed to remix. 
but I wasn't aware that the owl was that loud on some players. So if others are also finding a bit of a problem and a little bit intrusive or jarring, please let me know. Um, I will be keeping it because I also know that quite a few listeners have mentioned how they enjoy listening to the boat going into the distance and then they wait for the owl. And finally, hi to Dino. Always lovely to hear from you, Dino. I'm really pleased that you enjoyed the Trains in the Distance episode. Winter nights and firelight have always been times for stories. And this winter night in this firelight is no different. For stories help us to understand our world and who we are in that world. To offer advice, to warn, to instruct, to entertain. And the story I have in mind for tonight is one that I've known for a number of years, and because of that it poses certain challenges for me in its telling. This is because I know it when I'm wearing a different kind of hat altogether. Although I haven't specifically taught this one, is part of a collection of ancient texts that I include in some of the modules that I teach at university. And there, in the classroom, we investigate and dissect them. We explore their historical and literary contexts, analyse the language they use, genre, syntax. We consider the context in which they were used, what the authors, and often there were more than one hand in their current form, were trying to convey the issues being addressed, what their audiences might have taken from them. In other words, it exemplifies the distance that we have travelled in our approach to and use of text, both written and oral. We read things differently today. We use them in different ways. Therefore, it's not surprising that a lot of ancient texts, particularly myth, legend and law, are generally pushed to the cultural margins as being either naive, out of date, anachronisms of history that we have left behind long ago, or simply relegated to slightly strange, slightly anachronistic entertaining children's stories, or adult escapism. Myth doesn't work in our world of analytical reading. We get fixated on the wrong things, and it closes our eyes and our ears to the stories they weave. For myth and legend and lore and folktale are also too fluid, too prone to change, to variety. We like the versions of our ancient text to be as old as possible and as close to the original as possible. And even our retellings aim to be the definitive modern retelling. As if no further retelling is needed or useful. Dead letters, not living words. Dead letters that can be pinned to a board and studied. Living words are a little too wild, unmanageable. But, oh, don't we need them today? And so I'm going to tell a story tonight 
because it's one that's been playing on my mind for a couple of months. And in the form that we have it, it comes from Syria, but it most likely originated much earlier in India. And it's part of a collection of ancient texts called the New Testament Apocrypha, writings that developed and circulated shortly after Christianity began to emerge from its parent of Judaism. They include a wide and varied range of texts. And tonight's story, or in fact it's a song or poem, is rather abruptly inserted into one particular early 2nd century Gnostic text, the Acts of Thomas. It's actually an account of the ministry of the Apostle Thomas Didymus, the disciple known to most people for his doubting. But here he's presented as Jesus' twin brother, and at times almost interchangeable with him. A thing that would raise a few theological eyebrows today. However, within its early 2nd century Gnostic setting, this wasn't a problem at all. In fact, it neatly encapsulates its theology. Nevertheless, that's not what I want to talk about. And my challenge tonight is telling the story to you is not to read it analytically, but to tell it rather than read it, as myths should be told. And I'll try to keep the main elements of the story, the narrative skeleton, but the thing is to let the setting, our setting, here, tonight, together, paint the colours, form the contours. Myths are always told in the present for the listeners present. That way, the story stayed alive, taking new and sometimes strange turns. Myths were dynamic, untamed, and always, always relevant. Each performance, new and in some ways unique, woven from that shared space of firelight between teller and listener, and it's because of that they had this capacity to tell the very stories that the listeners need to hear, to soak down and permeate deep inside them, to lodge an image, a phrase that would help them navigate community and life. And because of this, they're also dangerous, wild, uncontainable, they take you to unsafe places within the familiar world. They take you to meet Mananon Machler riding his chariot across the ocean waves, and you will see the world as you have never seen it before. They speak the unspeakable. They speak forbidden truth to power. And you will hear the willows whisper on the soft breeze, golden with evening light that the great imposing king Lowry Linshock has horse's ears. I'm glad that interest in the old myths is once more on the rise. And I'm even more glad that the interest is not exegetical or analytical, but it's finding ways to let those old voices, those old stories speak to the present and find in them something forever young. And so 
I might from time to time break in and explain something, but I'll try to let the story tell itself, to let it find its own contours by which to flow, to give it free rein, to open its wings and let it soar into the nights of our stars and our loves and our fears and lead us where it may. For this is how myths and legends, folklore and fireside stories have always worked. And this is why we need them now. But it all happened a long, long time ago. As these stories often do. In a world of summer and light. It was the type of world we recognize in our dreams and in the embers of our memories of memories. And it began like this. When I was a little child and dwelt in my kingdom, the house of my father, and enjoyed the wealth and luxuries of those who brought me up. How many of our old stories and tales begin like that? with a young boy or a young girl. And our cultural drift and consequent mythological amnesia mean that we tend to assume, therefore, that these are clearly stories for children and are then relegated to the literary margins away from texts more appropriate for adult consumption. Yes, these spoken stories themselves are communal event, inclusive, embracing, Children can listen, participate, learn and enjoy, but not to the exclusion of others. To ignore or dismiss them as childish fantasies that are primitively naive in depicting worlds that are illusory and irrelevant, or at best as escapism from the realities of the real world, is to completely misunderstand how myth and legend work. For they provide structures to help us construct or understand our own narratives that we are living. They, the good ones, the ones that have been honed and refined through use, speak to that part within us, deep, deep down, that remains forever young, the child in us. These are the stories that speak to us, not as we are, locked into the rigid carapace of adult conformity, but to the essence of ourselves that we were born as, and that somehow miraculously always remains alive. That young spark of fire that is you, and that has always been and always will be, no matter how old your body will grow, how old and tired your mind will get, how old your spirit becomes. The forever young you that lies at the very heart of you, that remains rooted, for good or ill, in the convulsions and the joys of your past the cartographies of the soul of your personal histories. And so the stories begin with a young child talking. And the small child in this story was, unsurprisingly for the time, a boy, but it could have been a girl. And we are told of how loved the little boy was nurtured and protected within his family home. 
His small world was prescribed with protective borders, so that he walks freely and safely without care or concern. And he is clothed with a toga of rich purple, lavish and royal, the material measured to fit his small body perfectly, and on his shoulders he wears the most splendid robe that you ever saw, which in their love they had wrought for him. And one day the parents approached the little boy to tell him that the time was come for him to leave the secure borders of the land that he knows so well, the land which has nurtured and sustained him. The land that has filled his life with the glitter and beauty. For the time had come for him to leave and go on a long journey far, far away. For there are other lands that call to him, lands of joy, lands of pleasure, but also lands of sorrow and regret. And he must visit these lands, know their paths, find where the springs bubble and rivers flow, discover how the sun sets on the monstrous grey mountains, and feel the sting of rain and the bite of brutal wind. To all these lands he must journey, although he knows this already, for even in his dreams he has heard them call to him. Just as there came a time when we knew it was time for us to go, time for us to discover new lands, and his parents tell him that the time has come. He must go, they say, and gently lift from his shoulders the splendid robe woven with their love from all that is beautiful and sustaining in the land of his birth, and their hearts break at the tears he sobs. Without his splendid robe woven from love, he feels alone, lost, an unperson as a dandelion seed must feel, blown from the perfect globe onto a careless wind, vulnerable, drifting, abandoned in air and mud. And he reaches out a skinny arm to take back the robe, to feel again the person he is, the child of his parents, the one who is welcomed and accepted in his own land. But they smile gently and push his grasping hands away. Through his hurt and his tears, he cannot see their tears. All he can feel is the emptiness on his shoulders, the cold beginning to penetrate down his back. All he can feel is what he has lost. I will go, he sobs. But please let me wear my splendid robe woven in your love. It will keep me warm when I am cold. It will keep me dry when it's wet. I can face any danger if I am wearing it. For while I am wearing it, I can never be truly lost. For it will remind me of who I am and where my home really is. And his parents replied, it is not the robe on your shoulders that give you these gifts. It is the one here, and they kiss gently his forehead. Remember the robe, and all these things will come to you. 
The robe is just something that you put on your body, but it's made from all those things that are already part of you. These we wove together so that you would be reminded that you are our child and the place to which you belong. Never forget the memory of the robe, but we will make this vow. Listen carefully and write it on the deepest part of your heart. If you go to the land of the south and dive down under the foaming waters in the midst of the sea and bring back here the one pearl that is guarded by the loud-breathing serpent, you shall put on again your splendid robe. How many of our well-loved stories of old involve not just a journey but a quest, a task, a quest for sometimes something rather absurd, impossible, and yet in the light of all the impossibilities of life that we face, we can somehow relate to them. We too are somehow somewhere deep down on our own quests for something, possibly for something that we can no longer remember. But when that quest stirs, we know that feeling of disquiet, of restlessness. And because of this, we can understand, and perhaps even with the mundane busyness of our day-to-day -day lives, we begin once more to recognise the epic, the epic in us. For the epic stories were never really about the old and new gods or the great warrior heroes of the past. They are, in fact, about you and me. And the quest, whether it is to find a grail or a treasure beyond price, or whether it is to fill a certain impossible task, is also never really about the object of the quest. It's always something far more internal. And as the robeless young child steps out onto the threshold of his journey, his loss and his lostness still marking its trails upon his cheeks, his parents watch him. How hard that must have been to lose their child in the letting go, to open the hand in which the butterfly is clasped, to raise it to the sky and to let it go. Grief for grief in the first steps of fulfilling the humanness of us. And so they stood at their palace gates and watched him head out, with two stalwart attendants into the beautiful, exciting, ferocious world ahead of him, the world that lay beyond the borders of their own country. They were wise parents, and their love must have been strong as they watched their child get smaller and smaller as he walked into the dusky distance, for they knew that the quest was never really about a pearl. And the boy walked with his two companions, following the trade routes and drovers' tracks, across mountains, forested valleys, going further and further south. They stopped each night at taverns and hostels 
wayside lodgings and caravan nurseries. Some nights they slept under hedges, or took shelter in scrubby woods where the fields receded into wilderness. And they wandered the crowded souks and the cluttered marketplaces, all the time heading south. And in the night time, the stars would whisper, "Remember your splendid robe. Remember." Your splendid robe, and beside the river, whose waters sparkle blindingly in the sun, the reeds would rustle. Remember, your splendid robe. Remember, your splendid robe. And the boy would remember his robe and draw strength from it. I am not lost. Neither am I alone. I have a splendid robe woven for me by my parents' love, and so he passed through the hot desert sands and the dusty earth of Mezene, and Babylon, Saburg, and Arabia, and he went down to the land of the south, and there. He went straight to the sea and sought the loud-breathing serpent that lived in the deeps below the cresting waves and guarded with her body the one single pearl. And there he could see from the movement of the waters, the writhing of her body, and hear through the breakers' roar her breathing. And so there he waited. There he stayed until she should fall into a deep, slumbering sleep. For then, he would dive down and take the one single pearl that lay guarded in the centre of her coiled body. But as it happened, loud-breathing dragons—that's how the term serpents was principally understood in those days—that lived in the depths of the ocean seldom sleep, and so his wait was long. His wait was arduous, and his two companions left him, drawn to the light and the life and the colour and the sounds of the land of the south. But by the sea the boy remained, and still the loud-breathing serpent refused to sleep and thrashed the waters and made them roar. And during those long days and nights he sat in the light of the sun and the moon. And he was comforted each night by the star song. Remember your splendid robe. Remember your splendid robe. And when his patience was nearly spent, the lapping ocean into which the great river flowed whispered, "Remember your splendid robe. Remember your splendid robe." And the wheeling gulls cried from skies of sailors' blue. Remember your splendid robe. Remember your splendid robe. And as the months grew long, and the moon grew old and was reborn in the east, grew old and was again reborn, their song, "Remember, remember," filled his dreams. But at last, as sometimes happens, the boy too gave up, 
I will come back in a little while, the boy said to himself. And then, when I return in a week or two, perhaps the loud-breathing serpent might be asleep. I'm getting older now, and in need of company now that my companions have left me. And so the boy made his way to a hostelry above a crowded souk that was filled with life and pungent scent of spices and incense and the glow of beaten copper on which the oil lamp's flame flickered as if in dreams. And there he met a fellow traveller from his homeland, and they fell into conversation as fellow travellers in strange lands often do. They quickly became friends, and his new friend warned him to be very careful of those who live in this country. They are not like our own. Do not trust them. Do not let them see that you are of different birth. The men of this country are dangerous. For that is the nature of humankind. It's always easier to spy the monster in a stranger than it is to see their human heart. And so the boy changed his clothes for clothes like theirs, and he spoke in the way that they spoke, so they may not know that he was a foreigner. For it is hard to be a stranger in a foreign land. And quickly he made friends with the townsfolk, and they gave him food and they gave him drink, and they invited him into their homes to rest and showed him around their town and all the wonders and the beauties it contained. But there were times when he would stand beside the great river and watch the water flow toward the sea, and he would catch the faintest sound of a song within the rustling reeds and the willow trees on the banks. Remember, remember. And there were days when he could not quite remember what it was he should remember. But the knowing that there was something gave him comfort and warmth. Even though a strange feeling of discontent and restlessness would arise. And he would stand as if entranced by such a wistful melody. I wonder what I should be remembering he thought. Why is it that it makes me feel as if I do not belong here, as if somehow I have taken the wrong path, that this is not how life is lived? But he was young still, and these are questions that many far older than him could not answer, and so he would sadly walk back from the softly flowing river and the rustling reeds, and the dew-fall of stars, to his little room, and there he would sleep. And then there came the day when even the song he could no longer hear, all he could hear was just the rustle of the reeds, and the wind through the willow branches. But he was touched by their beauty, and would sit for hours, watching the sun dance on the waters. And each time he got up from the bank, he didn't know why such beauty left him feeling sad and created such a longing for something that he couldn't explain. 
and as the weeks passed. The story tells us that he filled his days with filling himself with the richness of the food of the South, and because of it he began to fall into a deep, deep slumber. It was the type of slumber in which working day rolls into working day until the haze of weeks merge and flow into one and the seasons pass unnoticed and unmarked. But from time to time, in dreams, he would hear the echoes of a melody he once thought he knew. Remember, remember, but he no longer remembered what it meant. However, back in his homeland, his parents had never forgotten, and each day they sought news from the south about their child. And in the evenings they would go up to the highest balcony of their palace and would look out across the vale to the borderlands, waiting, waiting for the sight of a small figure in the dusty haze of the distance. And when darkness had fallen and the moon was climbing high in the sky, they would turn and sadly go back inside. And his mother would go over to his room and run her fingers over the splendid robe that she had woven. Perhaps it will be tomorrow, his father would say. But in their heart of hearts, they knew what had happened. For doesn't this always happen when we begin to leave our childhood? Childishness is not the only thing we leave behind. Our growing is as much about growing less as it is about growing more. And so one day the parents sat down and said, We must do something. He shall not be left alone in a foreign land. And so they set out to write a letter to him. And in the letter they wrote, From your father, the king of kings, and your mother, the mistress of the east, and from your brother, our other son, Arise, wake up from your sleep, and hearken to the words of our letter. Remember that you are a son of kings. Remember the pearl for which you went to the land of the south. Remember the splendid robe and think of the glorious toga that you may put them on and clothe yourself with them once more. And when it was written, the letter took the form of an eagle, the king of birds, and flew across mountains and desert to the land of the south. No, no, that's not quite right. That's not how the story goes. In the story, the eagle was the letter, and the letter was an eagle. The two were one indivisible entity. And the eagle flew on his powerful wings straight to the land of the south and to the child who was sleeping alone in a world in which he had no place. And the child awoke and took the eagle in his arms, kissing his head, and he read his parents' words. And as he read it, it was as if 
his blanket of slumber fell away from his body, and he remembered. He remembered the one pearl and the loud-breathing serpent, but most of all he remembered the splendid robe that he used to wear, and how it was awaiting for him to return. And he could feel there the weight of it once more upon his shoulders, and the warmth it gave him on cold winter nights when he would wrap it tightly around his small body and hug it close. And once more, as if the clouds had suddenly parted and the full moon shone brightly down, the world was again filled with music and song. And once again he could hear most clearly the song of the stars and the whispering of the reeds on the banks of the great river. And at the same time he realised that the song had never ceased, and that he had always known its melody deep within him. And these songs, these awakenings, are never easy and often painful. There is often such deep sadness in their melodies. And as he sat, his tears flowed, wetting the back and the wings of the eagle, the eagle that had flown to him with a message that he had forgotten but always forever knew. And he understood. He understood why he could never really feel at home, and even among his new friends, whom he dearly loved, never really felt part of them, as if he had been thrown or cast adrift in a land that did not make sense. And perhaps, for the first time, he could see the value of the robe was not in its fine threads or the encrusted jewels, but that his parents had wrought that beauty from nowhere else but from himself, and woven it together with their love. And the story tells us how the boy dived to the ocean deeps, to the place where the loud-breathing serpent guarded the one single pearl and how there he enchanted the serpent into a deep sleep. For these were days before dragons were things thought to be conquered and slaughtered. And he took the one single pearl from the coils of her body and brought it home. And that is how it always is, that which can speak only to that which remains young within us the strange, enchanted letter that calls deep unto deep will always come like this. Not as a letter, but a letter lived out. Unexpected encounters that become charged with significance and weight. It may be a silent meeting with a heron in whose eyes you recognise something of you the sound of a flight of wild geese that stings a memory of something old, older even than you. A crow's call that challenges deep within, a flicker of light through silver birch leaves, the warm welcoming scent of an old oak tree in the rain, dawn light breaking through a misty glade, 
a breeze that touches something much deeper than your skin. A moment in time that jolts you awake and you remember once more who you really are, reminding you that you are much more than who you have become and who those around see, and that slowly it begins to make sense why you feel like you have awoken in the wrong universe, out of time, out of place, why you feel at a loss and so dislocated and that things make so little sense. And once more you remember that, although you might feel far away, that you are not lost or alone, that you are loved and you belong. A message sent straight to you, eagle straight, that helps you to make sense of the lost songs that you hear the stars and the reeds sing in your dreams. That you have journeyed and journeyed far, travel stained and tired, and the quest of the pearl is nearing its end, and the splendid robe is warming by the fire, waiting for you to put it on and to walk this earth knowing you are home. See, look up to the sky, where it's dark blue, almost indigo. There is an eagle, winging its way back to your waiting parents, bringing news to them. Soon, soon, your child will return. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off the night and wishing you a very restful and peaceful night filled with good, wise dreams. Good night. Temperature outside, 9.5 degrees. Inside, 22 degrees. Humidity, 80%. Dewpoint, 6 degrees. Wind direction, west-southwest. Wind strength, 13 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1020.3, rising. Cloud cover, 31%. Cloud ceiling, none. Precipitation, 0 0.25 millimeters. Moon phase, 3.3%, waning crescent. Day length, 10 hours, 8 minutes. Sunset, 17 26 Sky casting 715